With every episode of Economic War Room, we attempt to foresee problems, counter them, and offer practical solutions. Whether it's money or housing or energy, the border, inflation, the China threat, jihadis, ESG, woke corporations, World Economic Forum mandates, investing, space, artificial intelligence, education, the Great Reset. We've covered all of these and so much more. But not just problems. You know, too many programs just have talking heads and here's the problem and here's the latest outrage today. No, we don't do that. We like to offer actionable solutions, whether at the personal level or in your community or your state or our nation. We think of ourselves as a solutions to action tank. Yeah, we identify the problems. That's the bad. And then we come up with solutions. That's the good. And then we talk about if we work together, how can we bring a beautiful future for ourselves and our families? With every episode, we produce an economic battle plan. And we've got five years worth of those now. We're approaching 300 episodes. And we've covered big names like Dr. Ben Carson, Michelle Bachman, Frank Gaffney, Glenn Beck, Nigel Farage. Sometimes we bring yet-to-be-discovered solutions and people who aren't yet famous but are solving real problems. And that's the case with our show today. And the topic is one near and dear to all of us. In fact, life doesn't exist without it. Over the long history of humanity, this is the number one economic weapon, and it was the first economic weapon ever used. Empires have been toppled over this topic. People have been enslaved because of it. This is perhaps the most basic of human needs, and thus personal vulnerabilities. And it is one of the major weapons in the arsenal of liberty's enemies, both foreign and domestic. I'm talking about food and food insecurity. You know, Esau sold his birthright for this. Joseph saved the world and then he enslaved a nation with it. People have killed for it and started wars over it. Even the Arab Spring was the result of food insecurity. In fact, there's a lot of academic papers. If you look back, there's one here, sciencedirect.com. It's a scientific paper who talks about how food insecurity led to the Arab Spring, where we saw so much change in the Middle East. If there are massive food shortages or famines, we'll have war. There's no doubt about that. Wars throughout history have been fought over food, and there will be wars in the future fought over it. But it goes beyond that. A manipulation of the food supply can be used to control people as well. Just over the past year or so, we've seen some very strange things happen in regard to food. And America may be the most overfed country in the history of the world. But food used to be a local product. It's now become big international business. Family farms are disappearing. That's true because of the tax code but also the nature of conglomerates, technology, and lawfare. From a tax code standpoint, uh, when the original farmer dies and passes it on to the next generation, that may be over the tax limit. And so they have to either be a very small farm or they're going to have to sell off their farm just to cover the cost of the taxes. And then there are conglomerates ready to snap up any available land. In fact, uh, just before we came here, I got a letter from uh, my father had owned some property in Oklahoma. 
and a big conglomerate wants to buy it up. They made us a lowball offer, in my opinion, but they just like, oh, you have land, you might need money. Here, we offer you cash for that. And you don't know, is this China? Is it Bill Gates? We have no idea. And then technology. As technology advances, and that's good technology sometimes, but bad technology in other times, uh, farms are being controlled by big corporations who control the technology. There are even kill switches that are put into the tractors in case you haven't made a payment one time. And that's a means of taking over farms. And then there's lawfare, where you have a family farm and you happen to be producing raw milk or something like that, and the feds raid it and they decide that they're going to stop it. Or big corporations put regulations in that a small farmer can't respond to. Like Monsanto, they created specialty seeds and then patented them. Now, if a neighbor farmer planted those seeds and the wind blows them onto your land, you could be liable for a patent violation. And the seeds produced from food that you grow don't necessarily belong to you. Monsanto sold to Bayer, and that's become a legal quagmire. Bears may be regretting the day they bought Monsanto, but Monsanto controlled so much of our food supply. Now, chemicals used on crops, they were once deemed safe, but later found tied to disease and long-term health problems. There's a rash of food allergies. Some claim that genetically modified crops are to blame. Now, the FDA denies it, and there's scientific evidence that they bring out to show that it's not a problem, but there are also documented instances where GMO corn was improperly introduced to the food supply with tragic results. Then we have the mysterious food factory fires and food shortages, and contamination of crops and food recalls. These are a, a lot greater than I recall when I was a kid that you had you know, all of these diseases and outbreaks and everything else where they have to recall the food. Massive corporations control our food supply today. And for the most part, they're looking for the profit incentive. They're not looking to feed their families with it. They're looking to see how they can maximize profits, which means shortcuts and chemicals and things like that. And there are these crackdowns on things like raw milk and Amish farmers who've had their livelihood destroyed because they dared to share meat outside of state or federal authorization. They thought they'd followed the law with a club of owners. No wonder farmers are selling out to Bill Gates in China. Do you really think this federal and big business takeover of our food supply is beneficial? The gut biome, our guts are being harmed by excessive processing of food and food allergies and less nutrition. Why? It's money and control. This is economic warfare. In Europe, at least a part of the food regulations have been meant for healthier food. And lots of products sold in America are banned in Europe. But in Europe, it's not so much about food safety as climate change. Farmers are being forced to reduce their herds and leave their land unplanted. Climate change and the scam opportunities it creates has created a whole new industry like the fake meat phenomenon. Do you really think it tastes better or is healthier? It's more expensive. It's bad for you and not very appealing. And then there's the transition to eat bugs the World Economic Forum wants to do. They've already introduced it into your diet. You know, the Bible prohibits eating bugs except for locusts. Even organic foods are under attack via regulation and big money interests. There's this appeal by Bill Gates where they put a fake uh, coating on fruit to make it last longer. You know, McDonald's hamburger stays preserved for 20 years and we think that's gross. Now they want to make our fresh fruit that never rots due to the addition of chem chemicals. Is it really fresh? 
Lots of people are concerned about this. We're going to take a break. We'll come back with solutions. We've been talking about food. There are three big questions. Number one, will there be food or will farming be shut down for climate change or natural or man-made disaster? Two, if food is allowed, will it be fresh? Will it be healthy? How will we know? And number three, will food be limited based on a social credit score? These are real questions. These are things the Economic War Room is here to look at war game solutions for these problems that we see coming. We have practical answers for what you can do to protect yourself, to protect your family and your community. And there may be investment opportunities where you can use your money to help preserve liberty, security, and values. One of the most important things you can do starting today is to develop a food security plan for your health and your family's future. And we found a potential solution. It's early stage, but it may be a great answer. And to introduce that, we've invited William Layton of Virginia as our guest today in the Economic War Room. He's a farmer now, but he started in construction. Huge projects. He owned his own business with millions in revenues and dozens of employees. And he was actually on the team that built the wall at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. You know, Jack Nicholson in A Few Good Men, you can't handle the truth. You need me on that wall. Well, William is the one who helped build the wall that, that he stood on. Now, he was in construction first. He started as a hobby in farming. But the 2008 financial crisis hit and all the financing for construction dried up. So he turned his hobby into a business. He set a Virginia record with the largest pumpkin ever produced after uncovering one of nature's secrets. No fertilizer, local growth beyond organic, and he's branched out to dozens of fruits and vegetables. We've invited him into the economic war room to learn how his method may strengthen our food supply, improve our health, and feed America and the world. Welcome, William. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you for inviting me here. Well, we're glad to have you. Let's talk first about your 1,138-pound pumpkin that you grew in 2007. How did you do that? Well, it started off as a hobby, and I wanted to grow a giant pumpkin. So anyway, I went out there in the garden, done like everybody normally does, threw a bunch of fertilizer, chemicals. At the end of the year, I had nothing. Well, I'm not one to stop because I lost one time or quit. So then I ended up, learning the way humans grew food for hundreds of years. No fertilizer, no chemicals. They've only been around since the early 1900s. And I applied one of them methods. And then two years later, I broke the Virginia State record, shattered it actually twice with two giant pumpkins, a 938-pounder, then 1,138-pounder. And from there on, I turned this hobby, started growing giant tomato plants, big cucumbers, giant cabbage, and everything else. And in that, I discovered a new way to grow that's been around for, you know, thousands of years. And I learned how to commercialize it. It's a new way to grow, but it's really nature's secret. So how do you deal with pests if you don't use chemicals and fertilizers? Well, the way I grow, everything's controlled agriculture. In, indoors, but because my plants are getting everything that nature intended them to get, their defenses kick in, which repel bugs and stuff, the natural defenses. 
where they're growing with fertilizer and chemicals, the plants are only barely getting enough to finish up. That's why they're less nutritional. Your average tomato right now is 60% less nutritional than when we when we were a kid. Wow. So by tapping into everything that the plant needs, I don't need any GMOs or anything. I've grown tomato plants 24, 25 foot tall, cabbage, everything, the way nature intended it to grow. And yet the ag department, I think you told me, said it couldn't be done. You wouldn't be able to grow strawberries or something like that. Oh, uh, yeah, I was working with a college at the time. I don't want to name it. You sure. know how that is. But they told me I'd never grow a strawberry bigger than the tip of my finger, the scientists. And I'm like, what kind of scientists are these? I've already been growing strawberries as big as the palm of my hand. And after I showed them, they were pretty mad that a guy with no college education could show up a whole staff of, you know, agricultural scientists. And you're able to build, uh, grow these using vertical farming. Yes. But it's not hydroponics. Can you explain the yeah. difference? We're, we're not hydroponics whatsoever. Uh, hydroponics, I call them, my nickname for them is chemical soup. Who wants to eat anything grown in a vat of chemical soup? So anyway, we're able to grow. I've invented a sustainable growing system. Hydroponics, you grow one crop, you throw all the growing media and everything away, start again. I've grown strawberries in the same growing media now for 13 years. We never change out the growing media. Wow. Yep, we're able to grow crop after crop with less labor, less energy, less water. It's more, far more superior taste to hydroponics or anything being out to produce. And it's a high density growing system that allows us to, to grow vertically or any, in any situation. So what are you growing now? Well, in my agri-growing system, I've grown over 170 different varieties of plants. Wow. Not 170 different varieties of lettuce, like hydroponics claims. We're able to grow uh, herbs, uh, plants out of the wild. You name it, we're able to grow it. We've grown all the tomatoes, cucumbers, any kind of vegetable you think of, root crops, potatoes, beets, you name it, we've grown it. Edible flowers, microgreens. And the neat thing about what we're doing is it is beyond organic. Organic lets you in on a little secret. Organic means low spray and low chemicals, what the government sets. We're no spray and no chemicals. So we're beyond organic. So does that improve the nutritional quality? Yeah, because you're growing the plant the way nature intended it to grow. And it increases the nutritional, the taste, the length of, after you pick it, harvest it, the length that it's good. You know, some of the restaurants we're selling to back in Lynchburg, Virginia, you know, are telling us their shelf life is tremendous compared to the garbage they're buying from these other uh, companies. So you wouldn't need the appeal chemical that Bill Gates has invented to put on your fruits and vegetables. It's just naturally going to be protected. Yeah, yeah. So our, our shelf life is what it's supposed to be. And when you eat the plants, eat the produce and everything, you're getting the nutrition that you were supposed to get out of these plants because it's being grown nature's way. Well, we need to take a break. When we come back, we'll dive further into this and how people can benefit from it.
greenhouses, buildings, shipping containers, rooftop gardens, you name it, I put my system in and start growing immediately. Instead of focusing on the chemistry of the plants, we take into account the symbiotic relationships that the plants have formed in nature. We maximize them and we let it be the forefront of our system. So William, let's do a contrast between your amazing growing system that we just saw and a term that you used last night. I mean, this is, the, when you want to destroy your enemies, you salt the land. What does that mean and how do you contrast what you're doing? Yeah, with our system, uh, in the Bible it tells you uh, where God told King Solomon to get rid of, how he told him to get rid of the enemies. At the end, he says, salt the land. The Greeks did it, the Romans did it, and all that with the enemies. So fertilizers contain salts. Oh. So when you put fertilizer on your land, there's salts and chemicals and stuff in there that kill all the microbiology in the soil. Let's talk microbiology, because the, you, you've said your growing medium lasts. It lasts because it's living, right? Yes. And I learned how to commercialize and quickly scale the gr growing media with my inoculations. And how, what does an inoculation mean? Inoculation is where I take an inert growing media that's dead and lifeless, and I inoculate it with my biology, and it becomes living. But I'm inoculating at a scale three times what you find in nature. So now the plant, you put it in the growing media, it's all you can eat buffet. Wow. That's why I'm getting incredible growth, faster growth, more beautiful plants and everything. And all the scientists that I talked to told me you can't grow this stuff without putting the nitrogen, potassium, and chemicals there. And I'm like, you know, what kind of scientists Instead are you? Instead of chemicals, you're putting living organisms that allow for the life. And so... What happens if it dries out? Nothing. I uh, just did an experiment that I can show the viewers later on. We dried the grow media out the dust, added water, and the microbiology and everything in there just went dormant. As soon as you add water, it comes right back. And we put the strawberries and tomatoes in, and they're just as pretty as if we hadn't done that at all. That's so this is a fully sustainable growing system. Can it be commercialized? Can yeah, people make money with this? Yeah, we're commercializing it right now, and it's extremely profitable what we're able to do because you don't have the overhead, you don't have to buy all your chemicals from Bayer and Monsanto and fertilizer and all that, and you don't have the labor. The labor cost is half because hydroponics and everything grows one crop and throws everything away. With this, you don't have any throwaway. Basically, you plant the seeds and you harvest, plant the seeds and harvest, and the whole system does the rest. It does all the self-watering, climate control, and everything. We, we take the green thumb out of growing. We give you an instant green thumb. So everybody can do this? Anybody can do it. I uh, had a young lady that worked for me. She would run a cash register behind sheets at the Sheets grocery store. Yeah. Come out of there, didn't know how to grow anything. 
30 days, she was growing like a pro. That's and awesome. she was so proud of herself and growing the most tremendous crops and everything. And she was totally amazed. So anybody can do this. Okay, so we talked last night and you mentioned that you want to grow in the desert, in the freezing cold like Antarctica, on Navy ships, in outer space, mm -hmm. that you feel this method can be used even in urban areas or in these extreme climate locations. How is that possible? Because uh, I've been working on this event in this system for 12 years now, and I've grown in some pretty nasty environments. I let the greenhouses go up to 125, 130 degrees, do all kind of experiments, uh, growing in the bitter cold and everything else, and my system goes through just fine. Well, how do we take this then around the world? But also you mentioned inner cities like Baltimore has an interest in this, urban farming. How, do you, how can you do all of that? The veterans and the military and everybody with the AI system that we're inventing along with this thing, it allows us to control millions of farms around the world through our central command center in Lynchburg, Virginia. So we'll be able to you know, say if you're over in Dubai and it starts getting too hot, the AI will kick in and help solve the problems and everything that they have. So we got a whole AI system that we're building. You in. built a robot harvester too, right? Yeah. So the AI will control the, the harvesting and the planting because I designed the system to be planted and harvested by robotics where we can scale it up extremely quickly and you know, cut the labor factor down and increase the surplus so that everyone can afford this produce. It will just not only be the rich, everyone can benefit from this technology. What I love about it and what I congratulate you on is you're taking it out of the hands of required big corporations and big science and all yep. of that, and you're putting it back in the hands of real people using nature's own methods. Yep. So thank you very much. What this means is that we have a solution, and this is early stage solution, but it can help veterans heal their PTSD as farmers. It can put food back into people's hands, with, like victory gardens we used to have. It means healthier food without chemicals and additives. It means better taste, so people eat better and get off processed food addictions. We can end food shortages. It can be locally grown, locally harvested. It's lower cost due to less transportation, due to the robot harvesting. It requires less land. It requires less water. It could be a business opportunity. You can make a lot of money providing a valuable produce with great success. Even if you're working behind the, the uh, check register at the sh uh, shield, sheets, you could then be out there and be a real farmer. We could break the World Economic Forum monopoly. It's planned for the food supply. We could stop that. We can reduce the likelihood of war, conflict over food. And we're going to explore this further. We'll plan a summit. We'll invite William to come to Liberty Hawk Ranch. He's here now, but come back. And maybe it's investable. Maybe we get investment advisors to aggregate client funds and make an investment in his growth. Because I think capital is one of the main things he's going to need. He's proven it out. And so now we've got to go to a good business plan and get the capital together to make this possible. We want to get behind people like William who have a passion for feeding the world, who have a passion for solving problems and getting better quality food. 
We're going to summarize all of this in our free economic battle plan, and you can get a copy at economicwarroom.com. Remember, what we see as a marketplace, our enemies view as a battle space. This is Kevin Freeman from the Economic War Room.